you know, I got into the business 10 years ago as a property manager. And frankly speaking, I feel like anybody that wants to be their own buy and hold real estate wealth builder should be involved in property management to some degree before scaling their portfolio because fine tuning that system is really the name of the game. The easy part is buying. The hardest part is the property management maintaining over time. And then, you know, the exit strategy probably follows that. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ali Perlman, your host, broadcasting from the very first state to declare its independence, Rhode Island. Let's talk about how you can invest in real estate and gain financial freedom, shall we? If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and want to learn how to evaluate a deal, I created a free guide that walks you through the top five critical deal components that any investor, especially during COVID, needs to examine. And you can find it on my website. If you Google my name or go to elliperlman.com, you can download it for free. Okay, so my guest today is Sean Morrissey, and Sean entered the real estate forum as an investor in 2003, and he led a residential property management company in the Chicagoland area. He has managed over 200 residential properties while hosting a team of realtors to assist homeowners throughout the Chicagoland area with the purchase or sale of their homes. So Sean is a buy and hold real estate investor which is also what I do. And he focuses on value-add opportunities. He lives in Aurora with his wife, two children, two cats, and a dog. That's a full house. Welcome to the show, Sean. It is a full house, yeah. How are you? Good, good. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sean, can you tell me and the listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got started in real estate? Yeah, so I got started, boy, it was back in 2001. You know, I was fortunate enough that my dad gave me a book about using real estate investment for sheltering taxable income. And those were back in the days when, you know, I just getting my start and working in restaurant management. Decided to purchase my first rental property back in 2003 after, you know, participating in a lot of RIA groups and things of that nature. I had my first eviction in 2005 and was lucky enough to survive the market's downfall you know, right around 2010 or so, you know, got my real estate broker license in 07. I actually hung it with a Keller Williams here in the Chicagoland area. And then by 2011, I had enough folks that approached me about renting and managing their own properties that I decided to open up my own brokerage here in the Western suburbs of Chicagoland. And, you know, we managed about 200 homes up until 2018 or so. But really what my focus was really on just building my own portfolio and, and building my wealth over time and just, you know, leveraging that activity over and over. So that's currently what I'm up to today. Interesting. And, you know, you started back in 2001. How was 2011 for you? Well, I mean, 
ultimately financing flip. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I mean, I think of 2004, you know, my, my second investment property, I was able to purchase with one and a half percent down. And that was conventional financing at that time, which was crazy when you think about it. Talk about massive over leverage, right? Now that was like, you know, what we call these days as a house hack deal. But, you know, 2011, the flip switched, right? None of the banks wanted to lend. You had to have rock solid financials, cash in pocket, if you even wanted the bank to look your way. So, boy, I mean, that's ultimately what grabbed me. But at the end of the day, you know, when I think about what I know now that I would have loved to know then is ultimately the power of commercial financing and the fact that, you know, your own personal background, your own personal financials don't necessarily come into play as much as it does on the commercial side. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the asset portion of the show. You're investing in residential assets. Can you kind of walk me through your thinking process, you know, why you wanted to focus in on residential assets and what are, you know, the benefits of investing in residential? You know, the way I think of my, you know, really real estate investment career is very similar to the game of Monopoly, right? Where you make your way around the board a few times you, you know, you buy the parcels, you ultimately build on it and whatnot. Well, the point being that ultimately I started small and over time you leverage up, right? Or, you know, as bigger pockets likes to use, they use that term, the stack. That I think is a, a very good analogy to how I look at my own investment background. So having said that, I'm not necessarily opposed to assets outside of residential, but ultimately you got to find your comfort zone and you got to see, you know, know, go where there's opportunity. Having said all that, you know, I started off with individual condos, single family, boy, I mean, really for the first 10 years or so, and then ultimately started to scale to small multifamily and now exploring the world of self-storage a bit. But I will say, you know, going back to what I said before is that it's all about where there's opportunity. And, you know, in this market where we've seen, you know, falling interest rates and we've seen cap rates compressed because of that. You know, you've really got to start to think outside the box in regards to what value you're going to bring to an asset to create an equity position or ultimately add to the cash flow. And that, I think, is probably the biggest challenge for me right now. And I'd like to think, you know, many of your listeners are in the same boat. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, out of those three asset classes, the, you know, multifamily, residential and self-storage, which one do you think is going to be the most solid investment during COVID or, you know, maybe right after COVID? I think in my opinion, the answer is still multifamily. And there's a few reasons I'll say that. First of all, let me talk about what multifamily has going against it, right? Number one being that it's been a really hot asset for years now, right? So it's getting harder and harder to find opportunity and you either buy a stable income stream or you ultimately really got to find a way to squeeze more juice out of that lemon. The second point is eviction moratorium, right? So you think of the world of residential, you think of multifamily, you know, here I'm based in Illinois and we've got an eviction moratorium that's been ongoing every 30 days. We get an extension from our governor, you know, as of the time of this recording, it's through the 22nd of October. So what in a few days, but I, I don't see that ending. It's going to go again. So we've got that against us, right? But I look at self-storage, and it's another asset class where, especially here locally, cap rates have been really squeezed quite tight. But the other thing that, that gets me with self-storage and, and why I'm not that bullish on it 
is that ultimately it's an asset class where I feel like it's easy to reproduce, right? So ultimately you can find, you know, folks that are taking industrial buildings and saying, hey, let's cut them up 10 different ways or old warehouse space and let's cut them up 10 different ways. So you take that in consideration and the fact that you've got month to month agreements with all your clients and the value of having to sell their items behind a locked door, I don't think there is much value there. And I'm interested in that asset class, but boy, I just, I don't see it being as resilient as multifamily. And, you know, the only reason I choose multifamily over residential, be it single family, is that ultimately you have more doors under one roof so that ultimately you can leverage those repairs. I mean, that's the capital expenditures tied to it. So all that has to play to the fact that multifamily is the way to go. And it's tough to find R5 zoning out here, multifamily zoning. So, you know, in my neck of the woods, that's, that's still the asset class to be. Yeah, I think in many, many other markets, that's still the case. And I'm very bullish on multifamily. And we've seen how it's performing during COVID. And hopefully, it's not going to be another year long of COVID, you know, reality. I'm really hopeful. I think by spring, maybe early summer of 2021, that's going to be behind us. I hope so. But we've seen so far how multifamily has been performing. And, you know, it's kind of maybe a good transition to our next part of the interview about strategy. And I want to talk to you about buying distressed properties during COVID, which is something that you also do. And it's really interesting because obviously distressed property comes with a lot of opportunity. But then the question is, do you think that during COVID, is it better to focus and buy a strong performing asset or should you go after you know, the distressed properties that present potentially a higher opportunity, but also bear a lot of risk in unfamiliar kind of territory of COVID? That's a great question, Ellie. I mean, at the end of the day, I've seen both sides of that coin this year. You know, boy, it was back in August, you know, I had a 34 unit apartment building under contract here locally, and it was a stabilized asset. I mean, it's one where New roof was put on in the last two years, all new windows in the last year. They, they did some nice capital improvements. There was a small margin to bump up rents. But at the end of the day, that deal fell through because there was somebody else that was willing to spend more money than me in terms of purchase price. So even I, my stomach churns when I think about how compressed cap rates have become and whether that what I'm buying at that price is going to be sustainable five, 10 years from now. Now, I had a, a similar situation with the self-storage facility where there's just somebody out there that's willing to spend more money for a stabilized asset. So for me personally, the opportunity still lies in distress. Now, distress can come in a couple different forms, right? It could be in, you know, frankly, a dumpy building that needs a ton of improvements. And because of that, rents are low. But I've also purchased, you know, duplexes where they're in fantastic shape. All the capital improvements are done and the rents are still low. Like that to me is easily a double, if not a home run. That was through some off-market type of marketing. Now, the other deal I'll talk about, which is even more of an anomaly, came off our local MLS, and it's a deal where it's a 12-unit building. The seller for that building renovated, and I mean to the studs, copper plumbing, PVC, sewer, everything, renovated six of the units. They're ready to go. The city just has to issue an occupancy permit. The other six are down to the studs and this building's for sale because the seller unfortunately passed away and now the building's in probate. 
Well, that building is a phenomenal deal. And I was fortunate enough to put it under contract about a week ago, and now it's in probate court getting approved. But at the end of the day, massive amount of what you would call distress, being that six units are down to the studs. However, none of the building's rented. Having said all that, I don't have to deal with anybody that's renting a property that ultimately has eviction moratorium to fall back on. So finding buildings like that, granted, they're very difficult, but if you can find a situation where you can buy a property without a tenant, improve that property, and then put your own tenant in there without assuming somebody else's problem, I think that may be the place to be right now during COVID. Because with that 34-unit building that I talked about a few minutes ago, I was inheriting you know, 34 of the seller's problems, which really I had very little information on on a month-to-month basis as to whether those people were paying rent or not. And it's, it's also easy for the seller to fudge those figures, frankly. To do your due diligence on that is, is a little tricky. So, you know, in a nutshell, I, I suppose that's where I'm at. I mean, looking at the distressed properties, but opportunities where you can place the tenant rather than maintain a potentially destructive tenant. Got it. Interesting. And can you talk to me a little bit about the misconceptions that investors have when they think about distressed properties? I think what it comes down to is is you've got to think creatively, right? Especially in the marketplace we're in right now, where real estate's been hot for for years now. And and frankly, I question once we got through 2018, if we were going to keep up this, this hot streak and it just keeps going. So with that in mind, it's A, it's getting harder to find your prototypical distressed properties, properties that need capital improvements so that you can drive rents. It's even harder to find what I talked about before, properties that have the capital improvements but low rents. So you got to think outside the box. And that could be finding zoning discrepancies. You know, ultimately, you may, in an old neighborhood like where I live, every once in a while, you'll come across a a couple single-family homes that are built on what the city considers like an R5 or a multifamily lot. And now, all of a sudden, you may find a property that is selling for $120,000, but you can basically put it back on the market for its proper use and now have a nice spread just based on the use alone. So, you know, finding creative opportunities like that, I think is another option for folks right now, especially if in your own marketplace, you just can't find the prototypical distressed asset, right? Where you can make capital improvements and drive rents easily. That's, it's getting a little trickier to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's more challenging to raise rents, even when you're talking about a non-distressed, you know, property. So Obviously, with distressed properties, there's more complexity that comes with it. But I do agree that you don't inherit the issues in form of, you know, current tenants that are there. So you have the freedom to bring whoever you want and make sure you can screen and make sure that the likelihood of them trying to use the eviction moratorium is is not as high. Well, that, that was interesting. Do you think that from your experience, have lenders still active when it comes to finance and distressed properties, because I can tell you that when it comes to multifamily with not turnkey, but value add, but still stabilized assets, at the beginning around March, lenders were a bit skittish and they were not sure if they wanted to lend. And now it's full back on, you know, it's they're lending, they have more reserves requirements and more, you know, restrictions and, and they underwrite the deals a bit differently but they're back in the game. What have you seen with distressed properties and how are you financing them? Let me tell you my COVID story, right? So back in February, right, what I'd consider to be pre-COVID, I was in the process of refinancing a 16-unit building 
with a Fannie Mae small balance loan. So I was fortunate enough to have my appraisal done pre-COVID, right? But the due diligence phase, the refinance phase all happened post-COVID. So to your point, I got caught up in the whole 18 months reserves, taxes and insurance that they held from the closing. And this thing took five months to close. Like it was, it was a headache because we're in turbulent times, but it got closed, right? And ultimately I was able to put some cash in my pocket and then put some on the books for next year so long as I maintain a, you know, that coverage ratio of 1.25 or better. Having said all that, now that I'm in the acquisition phase, I've had deals fall through kind of as I've mentioned before because it always seems like there's somebody out there that's willing to pay another buck. I will say that I've had no issues with finding financing on stabilized assets. Now, on the example that I gave earlier, that 12-unit building where six units are renovated and six are distressed and none are occupied, I can't get a traditional bank to lend on that. But you find a private lender. Ultimately, insurance is actually kind of tricky too. Insurance companies aren't crazy about empty buildings and, and renovated units. But at the end of the day, typical bridge type of financing, right? Where you're going to do your rehab with money that might cost you a little more, but on the back end, you're going to have that nice equity position and that property is going to cash flow great so long as you get those units filled and city's happy within you know a few months. So that's ultimately the, the grand scheme with that building is to ultimately renovate it, rehab it, rent it out, and then refi, and then just hold it. But in terms of financing, it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, everybody's, everybody's willing to lend on stabilized assets. And with interest rates coming down, what was considered a, maybe a poor deal eight months ago might be considered a good deal now because you're able to make up that savings in the form of an interest rate. So, you know, looking at those opportunities is, is something everybody should be doing. All right. Let's talk about the process of your business and you're also involved in, in property management. And I want to talk about using tech to streamline your property management business, especially during COVID. So what is the latest and greatest when it comes to property management these days? Well, and I, I should preface this by saying, you know, I am a buy and hold investor, but I tend to focus primarily on managing single family homes, small multifamily. So whether these systems will work for a large multifamily, you know, you'd want to evaluate. But having said all that, you know, I got into the business 10 years ago as a property manager. And frankly speaking, I feel like anybody that wants to be their own buy and hold real estate wealth builder should be involved in property management to some degree before scaling their portfolio because Fine-tuning that system is really the name of the game. The easy part is buying. The hardest part is the property management, maintaining over time. And then, you know, the exit strategy probably follows that. So the property management piece is huge. Having said all that, having managed up to 200 properties for other people, I basically incorporated those property management systems into the properties I own now today. There's three things you have to do when you're evaluating property management. And the first is rent collection, right? You have to have systems in place to collect rent. Uh, if you're managing for somebody else, paying out rents, handling your notices, bookkeeping, things of that nature. The second of which is handling repair calls and providing a system in which your tenants can actually request a repair or if they've just got a general question, ultimately reaching out 
with that question. And then the third is basically, in my opinion, performing regular inspections on the building because you want to make sure you're maintaining your assets. So really, when I look at building property management systems, it really falls on those three legs. And if you can get those three legs figured out at a more cost-friendly basis, the world's your oyster. And frankly speaking, I sold my management, third-party management portfolio a few years ago because I felt tech was coming in and ultimately compressing property management so much that it's going to be tech that manages properties for us, not necessarily people. So let's, let's talk about each of those three legs. The first of which is rent collection. And there's tons of tools out there, right? For the small investor, there's Cozy. For the third-party property manager, there's, there's systems like Buildium. There's Tenant Cloud, which is another landlord-friendly system. But one that I've come across recently that I, I want to really find a way to put into my systems next year is called Nesteg. And the reason I love Nesteg so much, I mean, just set up a demo call with them. I won't go into it, but they're affordable. They can basically do the majority of property management tasks at a fraction of the cost. It's awesome. So those would all be good rent collection tools outside of using your standard QuickBooks, right? When it comes to repair calls, my favorite system after trying a handful of systems is using an operating service called Latchel. Um, and that's L-A-T-C-H-E-L. And Latchel has been phenomenal and that you provide your tenant with a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week hotline. They speak English or Spanish. They ultimately document what the repair need is, and then they're going to walk the tenant through that repair request to see if it's a common sense issue or see if that is truly a repair call that has to be set up. And if it is a repair call that has to be set up, they've got on record your top three vendors for every category, electrical, plumbing, you know, carpentry, so on and so forth. So big fan of using them to leverage uh, repair systems. And then when it comes to inspections, I've been a little bit behind on this, but the two that I like are Z Inspector and Happy Inspector. And really the idea behind either software is you're able to incorporate photo or video into an online app that ultimately kicks out a report so that you can maintain the condition of the property or document how you're maintaining the property, how the tenant's maintaining the property, so that you can hold them accountable upon a move out if need be. Now, I've been told that there are services out there where you can you know, manage out of state and ultimately use a service to have you know, your local agent come by and inspect that property, but I have not dived deep into one of those yet to really support them. So, you know, happy inspector, Z inspector. And you, know, you fall on those three legs and you find ways to use that tech to better leverage your time and you're gonna drive down the cost of your own property management and just make your property more efficient, thus making your net income higher, thus driving your property value. So it's, you know, it's a win all the way around if you focus on property management efficiencies. All right. Well, that's awesome, Sean. Thank you so much, you know, for your time. And we've arrived to the last portion of our interview, the lightning round questions. So question number one, what's your favorite hobby besides obviously buying properties? I do try to run every day. You know, I used to run marathons, not anymore. <laughs> my knees can't take it, but just running every day, keep the heart healthy, tends to clear my mind. And, you know, you get those sudden bursts of, of random good thought that seems to come from that. I'm also trying to learn the piano these days, but we'll see how that pans out. I got to stick to it, right? All right. What's the one thing that people don't know about you and you feel comfortable sharing on the show? 
Well, prior to real estate and post-college, I was a, a Peace Corps volunteer. So, you know, 20 years ago, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, in Western Kenya. I uh, did a lot of good things there. Miss those days and miss those people. And, you know, I probably don't talk about it enough, but ultimately I, I hope that someday my real estate journey will lead me back to Kenya where I can I can leverage some of the wealth I've acquired over time and put it back into to giving back in that country. So, you know, time will tell. That's awesome. What you wish you had known when you just started investing in real estate, that was back, we said 2001, right? Yeah, 2001, 2003. Yeah, I mean, really, if I would have understood the power of commercial financing, I feel like I would have, you know, in the first three years, if I would have understood that, it would have jump-started my career that much quicker. So for those that are new to real estate out there, I would just jump on a call with a commercial lender and just take them out for a coffee and pick their brain. And really the nuances, the differences between residential and commercial. And if you can do that, I think you'll find some more opportunities for you out there. Got it. All right. Well, that's great. Thank you again, Sean, for your time. If any of the listeners want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, you can check us out on our website, chicago-realty-group.com. I own and operate a real estate brokerage here in the western suburbs of the Chicagoland area. You know, love working with investors or at least talking to investors to help them build their goals, help them build their portfolio. And then I also do a podcast on the side. So you can find that on the website as well. All right. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. I hope that the podcast today gave something to you, that you took something from it, that there was some value that we added to your professional life, maybe even your personal life. So that's all for today, guys. Be bold, be great, and keep moving forward. And I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.